Good morning, class. Welcome to uh, the Art Eater podcast. I'm your host, Richmond, and I'm here with uh, Sean. Hello. Yep. Yeah, we're uh, very happy to be here on the uh, 10th. I believe this is the 10th podcast, right? Yes, it is. All right. Okay, so uh, today's topic is uh, comfort games. So right now, uh, we're, you know, the whole world is going through the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, uh, Sean and I are lucky enough to be able to work remotely and, you know, self-isolate, quarantine at home. Uh, so thankfully, uh, we've been able to stay safe. Um, I hope as many of the, our listeners uh, can be so fortunate. And, you know, thank you to everyone that is out there still still doing your job. Um, yeah, I hope everyone can stay safe. Um, yeah, so during uh, this time, um, I, you know, we're going to talk about what games we go to for for comfort in times of trouble. What are what are the games that we've been playing, you know, while we're at home, while we have a bit more uh, free time? Yeah. So uh, before we dive into the games, um, Sean, you have a really interesting uh, statistic uh, that that we were just talking about right before uh, the podcast. Can can you uh, let the listeners know about that? Uh, sure. So uh, I became aware of a uh, report, uh, I believe, by Earnest Research that was. Uh, just taking a look at uh, the impact of a variety of industries uh, during the pandemic. Um, and I think it wouldn't surprise anybody that uh, certain industries are doing much better than others, uh, especially like, you know, ones in like entertainment and certain food industries tend to do well in any any rough time. But what was interesting is that uh, gaming is experiencing such a large growth right now that it is uh, basically second Um in terms of overall growth. So, I mean, we're talking about uh, measuring overall industry uh, where the amount of spending has increased um, almost 100%. Uh, I think the only one that's beating it out right now is online grocers, which isn't surprising at all. But uh, it kind of also, you can kind of corroborate a lot with a lot of pe- people that are just are, are turning to gaming to bring them together and to, to take their mind off of things and uh, to kind of get lost in different worlds. So anyway, I thought it was interesting because it's uh, even and, and everyone's perhaps not surprised that gaming is doing well. But uh, since y'all can't see the graph, um, uh, maybe we'll put it on Twitter or something like that. But it's it's like dramatically outpacing things like video streaming and alcohol. Yeah, um, that's really surprising. So, it's, yeah, so you, it's, yeah. you figure um, you know everyone's just at home doing Netflix, but uh, wow, gaming is the second experienced the second biggest growth uh, during this time of crisis yeah yeah and, and uh so i i think it, it has a lot to do with not just the the effect that gaming can have uh to, to like, again help you it's not just getting lost in worlds it's uh games nowadays are much much better at connecting people since so many of them are social and even if they're not i think we've talked about in previous podcasts how even single player games people find a way to kind of socialize around them so I think uh, it's becoming a venue for people to uh, find connection or solace. Oh, totally. I mean, uh, most of the games we've discussed so far uh, tend to be a little bit older, tend to be offline experiences, but people tune in to hear about that, you know? Uh, we, we can have a shared connection with these hundreds of different people across the world because we, we, we played some of the same games way back in the day or, or, or today or yesterday, you know? Have you seen the, uh, the Twitch things where... Uh, I think they even did it with Dark Souls, where uh, they would play through the entire game based on Twitch chat responses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. So that's really playing a single-player game together, although I think it's generally kind of a mess, although they did complete the game, so... Um, oh, no, those are amazing. The um, Somehow the... 
I don't know. What, what, what's the, is there a word for like a herd intelligence, <laughs> collective mob intelligence? Uh, uh, I'm going to use a very blizzardy term, hive mind. Hive mind, yeah. Dude, the yeah. hive mind conquered, you know, a, a notably challenging game. I mean, maybe the defining challenging uh, game of, of the last decade. I mean, I can barely beat Dark Souls <laughs> yeah. by myself. Yeah. yeah. I, I think they also did Pokemon, which, you know, I think is a little more understandable. It's not, not a real-time action game. Yeah, um, a little more forgiving. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm staring at this chart, and it's showing, you know, uh, which industries have gone down, which have gone up. You know, um, obviously on the down end, like airlines, cruises, lodging, that's all taken a nosedive. Uh, in the middle, you have like supermarkets. They're about the same. And then just very surprised, you know, not, not surprising that alcohol and video streaming are way up, but it's just games are way, way, way up. Second most growth after food, you know? So that's just, that's how big of a part of uh, everyone's life games is now. Like, well, uh, and to, to clarify, it's even booting it, beating out food delivery, which, oh, yeah, which yeah. like, so, so it's specifically being beaten by online grocers, which, um, I don't know. I would imagine that the category. I don't. I don't. I haven't looked at the actual data behind this chart because uh, it's a very beautiful chart. I, I imagine that online grocers is referring to ones that deliver groceries, whereas food delivery is referring to restaurant food that is delivered. It would be my guess. Yeah. Uh. So. Yeah. So to to segue into our topic, I, so online groceries, you you cook for yourself. You you you're you know you're being practical, right? Maybe saving some money. Food delivery. That's for comfort, right? That's like the food that like, oh man, I could really use like a really nice burrito or some sushi or something that, you know, you're, you're not gonna make at home. And then beating out the comfort food is gaming. So, you know, comfort gaming, that is that is our topic today. So, so Sean, what have, what have you uh, been, been playing lately? Uh, I'm gonna uh, actually quite, quite a lot more games than I normally play, uh, just probably because I have more time, usually I'm working too much. But I'll, I'll mention uh, two games that I've been playing, one on the single-player aspect and one on the multiplayer. Uh, so on the multiplayer, this will not surprise a lot of people if you know me. I've been playing a, a lot more Heroes of the Storm. Uh, it's, one of, uh, it's probably one of the, the smaller Blizzard games. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm also famously not a big fan of MOBAs. Like, I don't really play League of Legends or Dota. It's just there's something about the way those games work. And I, I have a theory around this, but... Uh, Heroes of the Storm, if you're not familiar with it, was Blizzard's entry into the mobile space. But one of the big differences it has between uh, uh, versus other MOBAs uh, in the genre is that it's much more team-based. Uh, whereas like League of Legends and Dota, uh, even though they have a little bit more uh, complicated uh, strategy around using like items and stuff, it tends to be the strategy that your uh, your team has very specific roles and they're funneling resources to create. Um, to give to uh, one of the the carries like an ADC or something like that. Uh, Heroes of Storm doesn't really work that way. I mean, I obviously started playing it because I love Blizzard characters um, and the there some of the the kind of attention to detail and Easter eggs are there. But I've even found that a lot of my friends that had stopped playing Heroes have come back to it because um, it's a game where you kind of win as a team. Like you, all the XP is shared across the team. It's a, really a lot more about collaboration and team fighting. Uh, like you get, you don't have an item shop, you have a uh, talent here. So every few levels you have a talent that's specific to your character. Um, there is like roles and stuff like that. There are, there are tanks and, uh, damage dealers and healers and support and stuff like that. But, um, it's much more of a, a team game, but, uh, it has 
pretty good highs and lows and whatnot. But I, I've, I, I had kind of fallen off playing it, even though I am a huge fan of it. But uh, as I've been seeing so many people return to it, uh, also Blizzard made all of the heroes uh, in the game free for a month. So that, that helped. I own all the heroes already, so it didn't help me. But for a lot of my friends that uh, can't spend money on it, it's a free-to-play game. Uh, so well, I think we can talk a little bit more uh, later because uh, I have some opinions about games that prioritize teamwork over uh, individualism right now. Uh, but I'll kind of move to uh, what I found a surprising one that I decided to revisit and i've really really uh been enjoying is i don't know if you've played this one it's a telltale game uh called the wolf among us uh it is uh it's based on a vertigo comic uh called fables and um oh i didn't know that was a fables game yeah yeah it's really really beautiful game uh really really uh fun like it's much obviously it's a single player game it's telltale so it's an adventure style game yeah very story Um, driven right um yeah yeah Came out in uh, 2013, I think. Uh, correct, yeah. And I believe they're, um, unfortunately, Telltale had a lot of financial problems, but I believe uh, it has been resurrected with another developer, and they're actually working on a sequel. Uh, but as, as if you played any Telltale game, you probably know what it's like. They're all really well done, but I, I would I would argue that this might be one of their masterpieces. The the Wolf Among Us is such an engaging game. It's got it's so it's so much fun. It it plays so much into the because it does it has both kind of an adventure to it. It has mystery to it, um, and it and it plays with of course it twisting characters into a modern environment. And granted, this is coming from the comic a lot more. Oh yeah, if, let, let's uh, give the listener, <laughs> listeners a little bit of context in case they don't they aren't familiar with fables. It's a series of uh, comics. Uh, from Vertigo, right? That, which is DC's more like adult-oriented line, and it's about uh, fairy tale characters in the modern world, right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty yeah. pretty uh, accurate. So uh, to give everyone a kind of idea of the setting, um, without without spoiling too much, this is pretty upfront. Is uh, you play mostly as the main character uh, Bigsby Wolf, who is the big bad wolf, but in uh, in the context of the game, uh, the uh, a lot, lot of, and I won't spoil the reason why, but a lot of these fairy tale char- characters have uh, moved from their fairy tale world to Manhattan, and uh, they live in kind of a, a somewhat secret environment. Uh, like they live in Manhattan, but magic and different things keep their fa- their fairy tale community hidden. Uh, but Bigby, the big bad wolf, is in fact uh, a police officer. He's the sheriff. <laughs> so uh, a lot of the 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 goal of like what you're doing is you're going around. Uh, at least initially, doing what sheriffs do. You're uh, dealing with domestic disturbances. You're investigating crimes, um, and of course, they do. All, they play a lot of fun. And this is part of I think what made it so such a comfort game for me, so delightful, is that just because uh, I hadn't played it for so long, so I forgot a lot of the little details they put in there. But it's got a lot of the little details that if you if you know like uh, fairy tales and you know um, especially a lot of the more obscure fables. Uh, just uh, from overall history, they do a lot of weaving that stuff in. Like, it, I would—I don't know if I would call them Easter eggs because, like, you're going into it knowing that you're dealing with fables characters, but just the way that they reference them and you discover, like, every time you meet a new character, uh, either you recognize them and they have a bit of a modern spin to the name. So I don't. This isn't a spoiler, but um, you you run into Grendel from Beowulf in the game. And uh, before they like, like even when you meet him, they don't call him Grendel. Of course, they call him Gren or something. Like so, they have a lot of modern twists 
on uh, the characters. So there's there's something to me that was just very delightful about seeing these characters and these old, old stories that I recognize and seeing all these characters in a new context, but also uh, having them play into the traits that create their uh, their stories. Uh, anyway, it's, just, it's a very, very well-made game. And I just, I found uh, that uh, it was, it was, it was comfort as well, because like, I just, every time I sit down to play it, I just kind of forget uh, what else is going on. Like it's a, it's a game where it's, uh, if you haven't played an adventure game before, it's mostly dialogue, but Telltale, um, especially like if you've played some of their earlier titles, like The Walking Dead, um, you can tell, especially with Wolf Among Us, where they, they hit a lot of their stride because you can see a lot of the advancements that they've built into the game. Like, so their earlier games started off with almost only dialogue choices, but now they have really, really an innovative quick time events. Uh, they have a they have a lot of choices and stuff like that. Like you often are, are given uh, very clear times or other times where uh, they do a lot of things where the choices matter in terms of uh, altering your gameplay and stuff. So it's very replayable. Uh, it, you can't you you have to pay attention to it. Like it's not um, like everything has got like a timer to it. So like your responses, uh, the actions you take, um, everything matters. Everything is connected to how you play. So uh, I just I kind of felt like it was uh, something that is really just overall great experience to sit down to not to mention like i said uh i mentioned it a little bit but the art direction is fantastic great use of color um really really nice rendering of the comic book style uh yeah, it's it's uh, not quite cell shaded right it's, it's more of a comic book look yeah yeah exactly yeah. oh um just uh, uh what's what's the term like it's not um a lot of unlit textures right or not uh, minimally lit like you, you they kind of let the uh, a lot of the texture do the um, the speaking, you know, it's it's not a very texture driven game, like the hand painted uh, textures to give you that hand drawn look, right? Yep, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they, they use a lot of um, really powerful dramatic lighting. Uh, they're not afraid to use saturated color um, in ways that doesn't feel gaudy. It feels, uh, I would say sometimes it feels poignant. They're, they're very good at knowing how to light a scene. Uh, the I, I forgot the art director's name. I feel feel like a terrible person. I should know his name. Uh, but the the art direction is very opinionated, for lack of a better term. Like um, it isn't just that it looks like a comic. Like the, the way they use color is very distinct. Like I uh, I often think about like a lot of directors and artists. Uh, we obviously talk about Kojima a lot. Is to me one of the marks of a great director, a great art director, is that without them using, like, leaning on a crutch, like something, a motif that they use often, you can see kind of their finger, fingerprints on every scene. And this is a game like that, where you're not going to be able to put your finger on it, but the the way that the art director and the, the overall direction of, like, the camera shots and the action in this game is used, you can see, like, you can feel the style behind the, the direction, but they don't ever lean on one motif or one crutch. Um, so it feels very cohesive. Like, you just... You get a feeling that you're being told a story in a very specific way, um, but there's nothing that you like. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but if you ever know what I'm talking about, if you see a little bit more junior art directors, they might uh, find that uh, I'm going to make fun of. I don't think J.J. Abrams is a uh, an amateur at all, but like early on, he got a lot of criticism for relying on things like lens flares. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing where that's a motif that he relied on that people criticized because it was easy for them to see uh through when he was using it there's yep. nothing in the game like this that i noticed i felt like it was a very cohesively told story the art direction is very stunning 
but it really supports the narrative and everything like that. And and it also makes you uh, feel the action a lot more, like the way that a lot of the choices are done. They don't feel like a classic quick time event. They feel, you feel engaged. They feel like you're, well, I think we talked a little bit when we were talking about Vanquish, how quick time events can uh, often make you feel disconnected from the action. Yeah. And uh, I think that Telltale struggled with that in the past with some of their games, but this game, they really, you can tell that they learned their lessons. Uh, and the quick time events all feel earned, and they all feel uh, they all bring you closer into the action. Perhaps uh, in a stressful way. I watched a couple streams of people playing this game, and if you're someone that doesn't realize that there's a quick time event, or you're you're getting like really into the the intelligence of the scene, like the dialogue and the interplay, uh, yeah. I've seen people literally scream at the screen when when a, an action happens, okay. or like people talking out loud about how they're like, oh no, oh no, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it's suddenly time-based, right? Like they're kind of drinking in the story, and then it's like, oh wait, I gotta make a decision, right? Yeah, it's an interesting up and down wave for kind of games like this. Because to your point, like an adventure game is classically uh, an asynchronous experience. Like you have time to right. consider your decisions because they have impact, and they they have a really good push and pull between when you have time to think about something mm. and uh, when you. Uh, when you don't, of course, they punctuate it if you haven't played Telltale games with exploration scenes where yeah. you walk around and investigate. So it definitely, especially being a, a sheriff, you get like a very kind of murder mystery uh, investigative feel to it. So it, to me, it balances all those aspects really well. I would also recommend to people if you haven't played Telltale games, the Walking Dead series is a good entry, but their Batman series and uh, their Game of Thrones ones are excellent. Um, I didn't even know they did Batman. Yeah, yeah, it's um. I would say it's quite Frank Miller, but uh, it's obviously uh, leans much leans much more heavily into uh, the comic book style. Which, if you're a comic book fan, you'll really like Telltale Games. They're clearly lovers of comics. Cool. Wow. Like actually, actually to note, all of their things that they work on are based on comic versions of franchises. So, right, so Walking that includes Dead, Walking yeah. Dead. Yeah. It does. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And fun fact for for me and Richmond here, uh, a lot of the the Walking Dead stuff takes place in Savannah and Macon. Yeah, yeah. Thought Dar- Darius would like the, the one that takes yeah, place. Yeah, shout in out Macon. to Darius. Uh, the Walking Dead takes place in your hometown, dude. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, I don't. I have no idea if he's tuning in or not. Oh man. Anyway, what about you? Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So, for some reason, um, I felt really compelled to pick up this game I've been meaning to play for, for years and years. It's the uh, Gege Gege no Kitaro game for PS1. The full title is Gege Gege no Kitaro Gyakushu Yoma Daikasen. It means the uh, counterattack, Great Yokai Demon War. So um, this such was a, one of the... Such a, a bold, like the name immediately gives you so much imagery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very... Go on. Like long, old school, dramatic name. Um, so it's... Um, a really beautiful uh, 2D uh, platformer, action platformer. Um, if you're not familiar, Gegege no Kitaro is a classic uh, manga. Um, I think it was first published in the 60s. It's it's this weird horror uh, comedy. It's a weird blend of horror and comedy, and it's about uh, yokai, which are you know folk creatures uh, from Japan. Um, and the the author Shikiro Mizuki is like super interesting, fascinating guy. Like he fought in uh, World War II, he, he hated the war. Dude's like a pacifist. He lost an arm. Uh, he was basically sent on a suicide mission and like survived. And then they were gonna send him back, but then the war wow. ended. 
Uh, so, so this guy has like a lot, of, a lot of real like crazy experience behind the stuff he does. But um, he, he draws these beautiful, uh, horror comedy comics about folk creatures. Um, he's been given like, uh, he's been recognized by different you know uh, um, organizations for keeping this part of like uh, the culture alive. Um, it's a really cool comic. Uh, so in 2003, um, they made this game for the 80th anniversary of the comic. Uh, and, you know, 2003, that makes it one of the very last PS1 games. Um, and so this is a last-gen PS1 game by Konami uh, when they were still kicking ass at the height of their powers. Um, and I would say it's probably their last great 2D game on a console. I, they went on to keep doing cool stuff on a, a portable for a while. But um, this is a hidden gem among, like, 2D uh, action platformers. It's... Um, you know, PS1, uh, we, we've talked about this in the past, like, um, it was really pushed as a 3D system, but it has so many classic 2D games, and, and even though the Saturn was uh, far superior for 2D, uh, you know, people still figured out how to make some really cool uh, 2D games uh, for the PS1, and this game was like, it pushes the PS1's 2D abilities to the to the limit. Um, so the, the it's it's an action game. It's 2D, uh, uh, pretty standard controls. You know, you run, jump, uh, projectiles. Um, there is a reflect button. Uh, there's a melee attack that reflects stuff. Um, and then you, you can charge your attack, like in Mega Man. Um, and then it's interesting. You, you hold down the shoulder buttons to change what kind of charge attack you're doing. And if you spam a charge attack too much, it kind of goes down in power. Uh, so it, it's got a couple, like, kind of subtle things, like weird stuff that... Um, you know, like, uh, this is a very experimental era, like, uh, a lot of, like, sort of um, sideways evolutions of, of, of uh, uh, standard, um, you know, practices for these kinds of games. Anyways, the main draw of it is it, it's just gorgeous. It's, it's much like the comics. It's got this really, it's cute and dark. And, um, you know, I don't mean, like, uh, yeah, happy tree friends or something. Like, it's genuinely dark and cute at the same time. And um, so you have these like SD characters, um, but then like some of them are quite, you know, unsettling looking. Um, and then the soundtrack is just pure like horror. It's, it's, it's a really amazing soundtrack. Um, and, you know, by, by 2003, we're getting some awesome, you know, CD quality uh, music and sound effects. It, it has a really lush, dark sound to it if, if you listen to it it's it's almost as scary as like silent hill just for the audio design uh but it's a beautiful 2d game uh i would say like almost on par with the metal slug games um and uh tone wise it's maybe close to like uh, ghouls and ghosts or, or or um you know like uh yeah, yeah ghosts and goblins ghouls and ghosts the the, the uh gargoyles quest games uh, where it's like still got an unsettling quality to it um, and then just the graphics, it's uh, 2D sprites. Um, it, it doesn't look like, you know, scanned artwork. Some some anime or manga games of the era, they started like scanning artwork. It sort of looked like a low res version of what should have been a high res game. Uh, this is like pure, really nice sprite art. It, it, it looks like all the learnings of the 16-bit era put into what today would be called like a high bit uh, pixel game. Um, and they're really smart about the way they made it too, because the the PlayStation famously does not have very much RAM. That's that's why it wasn't great at 2D. That's why you couldn't get perfect ports of like, you know, Capcom games that um, 
would would fit like in an email today but back then it would be like too big for the overall well, the playstation's too much they, they relied yeah. on storing stuff on the new cd media as well but um you can't that doesn't really help you unless you're loading like a video file right so yeah yeah yeah, yeah you can't just like stream a 2d game the same way you could do like uh tricks with 3d like a big 3d world um yeah so their solution was to break the game into small chunks uh so the overall way you go through the game it's not a traditional like beat the level go on to the next it's more like super mario world where you have you know um a overworld map connected by nodes and each node is just a short engaging uh, level and uh, because of that they fit a lot of different enemies and and uh the you know get a good variety of like environments and environmental animation and um really beautiful sprites like you you gotta you gotta look this up maybe maybe i'll do like a let's play video of it in the future or something it's it's an underloved game um yeah so yeah i i i guess i i had seen videos of it before um and i just finally had the time to uh, track it down give it a play uh was not disappointed um yeah so i i, I highly recommend it if, if if you can find it um yeah it's it's a cool game um and oh, a quick... uh, are you are you playing it like on an actual PS One or how did you how would you recommend getting a hold of it if I, you don't have PS One anymore? I am not playing it by the most legitimate means. <laughs> um, I was not able to like. Uh, well, let's go... say if you were to speculate about how you would play it, uh, had you not had a legitimate PlayStation One that you're definitely playing it. Oh, I, I I would highly recommend uh, getting RetroArch. Uh, I've been playing on RetroArch or RetroArch, whatever they call it. Um, it's uh got it's it's a really it's this all-in-one emulation solution uh you load the systems in different they call them nodes and um you're able to really customize the settings uh, the reason i like retroarch is twofold one is it really pushes accurate emulation um you can do like 3d acceleration and stuff if you want uh you know it's, uh, that's fine but uh, what i like is um it's very accurate to the original experience and then number two, uh, it has the best um, CRT emulation I've ever seen. Uh, it you you can play around with the filters and get it looking like you know you're playing on S video on an old uh, Sony Vega or like you're you're playing on like a nice CRT with uh, proper scan lines. And I I don't just mean you know like just the horizontal black lines. I mean like they look like little cells, like back in the day when you put your eyeball right up to the screen and you see like these individual little cells around each pixel and the light kind of blends properly. Um, it, it looks really good. And oh my gosh, like this game absolutely sings when you uh, uh, put it through um, those filters, uh, emulating the proper look of the game. Like it, it doesn't look low res at all. It, it's just this textured, beautiful game somewhere in between. Imagine like Metal Slug, plus like a vanillaware game um, with the mood of like ghosts and goblins. Like that's, it's, it's a really uh, cool. Sounds, sounds nice just saying that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And if you, if you check it out, um, it, it's all in Japanese, uh, but it's, it's easy enough to figure out. It's an action game. Um, I have one tip <laughs> at the very beginning. Um, you, it's a tutorial. The game, the game forces you to play through a tutorial. So you learn all the mechanics. Uh, the only one that's not exactly intuitive is um, you have a melee attack and it's for it's for deflecting attacks. So there's a boss sequence where it overwhelms you with projectiles. You can't possibly dodge all of them. You're actually supposed to be timing your uh, melee attack to reflect 
the bullets back. And then just remember that you can do that throughout the rest of the game, and you'll be fine. You're you're totally set for the rest of the game. Yeah. So um, th that that was the for whatever reason that was like the first game I was drawn to. I just thought, you know. I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands to play games, and uh, I think I'm just going to catch up on the back catalog. And oh man, this is a back catalog stretching, I was going to say years. <laughs> this is like decades. <laughs> I, have, I have like decades of games to catch up on, but um, it felt really good to finally scratch uh, this itch. Um, and yeah, I, I do hope to actually find a uh, proper copy of this and uh, play it on my uh, PS3, which I, I do still have. And uh, speaking of which, um, I have been playing on my uh, PS3, catching up on um, other uh, PS1 classics. Um, I recently started uh, replaying Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, be it's a beautiful game. Um, it's just as beautiful as I remember. In fact, uh, just the graphics and the the music is even better than I remember. Um, it's It's a great iconic game um I, I think maybe if if you're a new player if you're used to sort of a lot of the quality of life features of newer games uh the battles might feel a little bit slow to you uh just because you know it's turn-based and um you have to wait for uh the computer to take its turn one 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 character at a time and sometimes you have ai controlled party members you have to wait for them but um i i don't mind uh we, i i'm I'm in a very uh, lucky position right now where I do have a lot of time to, to play the slow-paced game and just drink it in. Um, it's it's a very graphically beautiful game. Uh, from a technical standpoint, it's brilliant. Um, the developers, you know, started off doing the Ogre Battle games and Super Famicom, so they they cut their teeth on the very classic pixel art era. Um, and then I think this was their first 32-bit uh, game. And oh my God, like I can't believe it was their first game because they did all the smart decisions. This is one of the PS1 games that's aged the best. Uh, we, we already did a whole uh, podcast on Vagrant Story. Uh, that was the game they would go on to do after Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, yeah, I, this was Square back then. It, but you're talking about a uh, a title that has like, if you want to get down to the the absolute core of what became Final Fantasy in terms of like the DNA, I think oh, this yeah. game is ultimately uh, where a lot of it came from. As well as Ogre Battle. Yeah. Tactics Ogre. So, the, yeah, I would say modern Final Fantasy is split up into two camps. There's the very, you know, more famous uh, Tetsuya Nomura camp, right? After Final Fantasy VII, uh, he, you know, the, the crown was passed from Hironobu Sakaguchi to Nomura to take over the mainline games, right? Um, and, yeah, that, that's where, um, especially starting with eight, you have, like, the more... Um, uh, just super beautiful Bishonen characters that look like, you know, pop stars. They they, they look like like idols or uh, yeah, like that's. I feel like K-pop has fashioned themselves after the look of Final Fantasy, not even the other way around. Um, it's uh literal. It's just uh, every character is distractingly attractive. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's um, part of the that's part of the fun. Right. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the uh, Yasumi Matsuno games, um, starting with Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, you know, the offshoot games, and then um, I, I believe he originally uh, directed 12, right? Um, and uh, I, I believe he's largely responsible for the success of uh, 14, which we've talked about a lot on this uh, podcast as well. Yep. Um, yeah, so so 
I would say Final Fantasy Tactics, um, you know, that's that's where you, they planted the seeds of, uh, I think, what people would consider the more classic uh, form of Final Fantasy that's persisted to today. Um, and again, you, you could see that right in uh, Tactics, 32-bit um, era, everyone was going full 3D. They very wisely decided to make it still sprite-based, very appealing uh, really clean-looking sprites. They still look great today, e even on a monitor with the naked pixels. Um, the style is just very sharp and appealing. Um, and then they they did have 3D backgrounds, but they were very. Uh, they weren't these huge sprawling backgrounds. They felt like dioramas. And the PS1 was just powerful enough to convincingly render these intimate uh, set pieces. Um, so it looks like you're playing like. Warhammer on a small board, um, and and because they were small uh, set pieces, they they played a lot more with verticality too. Um, so they still feel very substantial, um, and I, I think it must have been half technical limitation, but um, you know that drives the gameplay. Uh, because of that, uh, I feel like every action you take in tactics like is pretty significant. Like um, I. I feel yeah, like the, the only, I was going to say the, the, ver the verticality and the way the tactics work, the intimate setting, I feel like uh, up until uh, Larian started doing things like with Divinity, very few games actually achieved this feel, even as old as this game is. Uh, oh, like, yeah. It's, it's something, uh, there's something about it that feels like a, it, it feels like a board game. It feels like that, that miniatures experience, uh, but on a system, and it's uh, very difficult to quantify. Yeah, I um I think that's why I was drawn to it. There's like this handcrafted feel to it, and it feels very intimate. Um, and I I it feels intimate in like a really I I don't know what the right word is like um because you know usually you think of intimacy, you think of like oh I love these characters, and I do love the characters in the game. Uh, but it's it's not even like oh you know it's tugging at my heartstrings because because of the story, which is a big part of the appeal. But it's just like every pixel in the game has a lot of like warmth and personality to it because you know somebody put that pixel there by by hand somebody I, I, uh, those verts by hand like i have yeah. a i have a theory as to why it feels like that um yeah if if you ever uh for listeners you ever go play this game something you'll realize is uh games of this era uh and i'm gonna talk about ui here i'm sorry uh, but it's uh but i'm not sorry uh <laughs> that they did that's pretty pretty intelligent and most games of this era Obviously, on the PS1, like, uh, and a lot of these earlier systems, it was difficult to render, uh, like, windows and stuff convincingly. So most of them have like things like black boxes with white outlines, or so. So the the UI was just kind of a delivery mechanism for text, usually, or actions. But if you look at tactics, um, even the like the UI isn't that complicated, but it's got a lot of thoughtfulness to it. Like, there's nice paper backgrounds like they use pastel colors like yeah. they put they, they use very um specific sans serif fonts uh they use drop shadows where the texture is and they don't use them when it's on black the uh the portraits they have a consistent portrait style um one that i really enjoyed that kind of plays with the pastel colors even the uh even the stat bars and stuff like they could have just done it like other any other game where they took one pixel of a color and extended it but instead they used like really soft blue and red and green and then they blended it like it's one of those things where, where you could tell that whoever uh was thinking about this was like wow they're going to be spending a lot of time with this interface and it's going to need to feel uh like it's 
again, like it's a, it's part of this like uh, tabletop experience. It's, it feels like you're, you're writing on paper or you're feeling it. So I actually think that that contributes quite a bit to uh, like how it, cause it, it doesn't feel like anything sitting on top of it. It feels like it exists in that world. And you can even, uh, we might've even talked about this uh, in terms of the thought bubbles have the little comic thing to them. Like yeah. they spent so much time making the interface and the way that you interact with this game, like not just what everyone else was doing at the time because it was easy. Like, I don't know how hard it was, but it looks like it was hard to do. <laughs> oh, totally. Like, um, uh, I, I think even the Ogre Battle games in Super Famicom, where, where most interfaces were super utilitarian, like that even had that sort of written on parchment feeling to to a lot of it. Um, and then I, I think uh, for, for tactics specifically, so... Again, we're talking about sort of, this is like a point where Final Fantasy kind of branched off in two directions. Um, the older Final Fantasies had really utilitarian uh, UI. You know, they, they were like, um, like Symphony of the Nights famously had super simple UI because it was just the placeholder one. And then they were like, eh, let's just ship it with this, right? Um, and <laughs> that, that's like what Final Fantasy's UI has uh, traditionally been for the longest time. And then the um, uh, this team, the uh, Matsuno team, um, I I believe their their um, treatment of the UI is probably influenced by PC games. Uh, they they were a big fan of like a lot of early uh, PC games, which tended to you know put put a lot of love into the UI because they, um, they were on you know a higher resolution uh, platform, so you could get like the detail um, into the UI there. Uh, they specifically were really into. I don't I don't remember the title at the moment, but I, I believe it was like a Roman era strategy game. And it had, you know, like if you look up screens, I um I I may be remembering this wrong, but I think you know it had like a textured marble feeling to like some of the we, UI. We boxes. definitely talked about it in a previous podcast. Were Andy here, he would be able to tell you what it was because he was yeah. one of the members. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Professor Andy were here. We um who yeah. Who he's doing okay, folks. He's doing fine. Just um has some some technical issues. Uh, he's sorely missed. Uh, you, you guys are missing out on a lot of tangents and and cool trivia. <laughs> and, <laughs> sorry, and we knowing can't actual games that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah we'll, anyway, we'll, we'll look it up later, maybe. Um, but yeah, dude, that's a really good point. I think um, for me, uh, comfort gaming is largely about just the feeling of the game itself, not necessarily the style of gameplay. Because like you know, I, I went for like a platformer, like a real-time platformer. That's and then like a, a turn-based game. They, they they couldn't be farther apart um but both of them feel really really hand done like they, they look like uh you know a human being poured attention on every single little thing um and i i would say especially tactics is just at that era of 3d where like uh oh you know this goes back to where we started our careers um you know sean and i we we started working together when we were still at uh, at, at art school and um, our, some of our first jobs was uh, doing 3D levels for early, early pre-iPhone 3D games, like uh, like Duke. Hardcore, Duke hardcore mobile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hardcore mobile, like J2ME. Um, and uh, we we would build these levels by hand. Like you literally would build them like a a square at a time, you know, extruding extruding like a surface at a time because we had to always be aware of like the polygon limit. It was like you know, build a level, make it fun, but it has to be less than 500 triangles, not even like surfaces, 500 triangles, you know? And then um, I, 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 I guess uh, 
so there's a that personal aspect of it. I, I can appreciate the efficiency of a, a, especially a game like Final Fantasy Tactics, where like every single little pixel and polygon really counts. Like they really maxed it out. Um, yeah, and then well, uh, you even know, uh, even when we, were, when we were doing stuff like uh, I think you did this more than more than me when we were working on it, but even like porting and doing. I remember uh, I think you did most of the work on this, but we did the port of Field Runners which was a 3D oh, yeah, game on the yeah, iPhone. Yeah. And they wanted to port it to J2ME, and we were hired to do a lot of the art stuff. And I remember y'all were basically having to convert what were PNG 3D models into sprites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like the attention to that like sprite detail is often overlooked, right? Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. That At that point, I mean, even the first-gen um, iPhone, the screen was high-res enough that you, you could just like render out, pre-rendered 3D, shrink it, it would look okay. Um, but we we had to make it work with like a 256 color limit palette and yeah there's no other way around it other than to do it dot by dot you know it's very meticulous work but uh yeah it's fun it's weirdly fun <laughs> but it is it is interesting how a lot of the modern tools uh kind of it doesn't make people lazy because people spend quite a lot of time but it's kind of like you you get to the point where a lot of the tools can do things for you that you used to have to do manually. And in some cases, uh, it caused you to pay much more attention to each detail because uh, I think we often talk about how uh, artists do well with limitations. You know, oh, they're totally, really playing yeah. to, to what they're given r rather than uh, just having, you know, the like sometimes having too much freedom is stifling. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, like, um, like going back to our experiences, uh, applying that to Final Fantasy Tactics, um, the game has excellent vertex lighting, right? Like like way back in the day, um, real-time lighting required a lot of processing power. Uh, so you couldn't just cast a shadow in, in, in real time, you know, in a game. Um, so you, what you could do is you could select surfaces and say, I want to make this particular surface darker. Uh, or, or even just a particular point. You, you want to say, I want to make everything that goes towards this point darker on a gradient. Um, and if you did it right, uh, you could actually get like a nice sculptural uh, feeling to your game. Um, again, it was like a lot like sprite art in, in 3D. And uh, man, Tactics if, did that so well. If, you, if you're ever looking at uh, Tactics and whatever, one thing they use it to great effect with um, is things like rocks. And yeah. these like hard surfaces like yeah. uh, if you're ever looking at that and you're like oh wow how did they make it look so rock like you know uh, <laughs> yeah. like obviously there's a lot of uh, paints and like uh craft in the actual texture but what they actually did is each surface uh pulls around the rock side and the vertex is lighted across each side yeah. so it creates this very rocky feel and it's really clever yeah yeah so yeah, those those have been two of the games um, I just instinctively sought out. Um, yeah, they're just very engaging. Uh, yeah. So speaking, I, I want to kind of transition to another game that I have been playing that will not surprise probably anybody listening to this podcast, especially Richmond, is I actually have also dove back into Xenogears, one of my favorite Whoa. games of all time. And yes. it also famously uses a very similar uh, artistic style to Tactics, which is that it has... 3D backgrounds, using vertex lighting, using uh, very uh, handcrafted texture, um, but that it uses 2D sprites on top of that background. A big difference, though, is that uh, you can fully rotate the camera in Xenogears, 
And what's crazy is they basically have, um, I believe it's a 16 or eight point sprite. Like uh, if you ever did really old school, like classic RPGs, usually when you were building a sprite, it was like you're, someone's walking up, down, left, right. Yep. Um, and then as you get more complicated, but then you add cardinal directions in as well. Uh, so Xenogears uh, did this famously. So that way when the camera rotated, the sprite would rotate with it. And it sounds like it wouldn't work, but it actually works pretty well. Must have been so much work because you, I mean, you can like kind of mirror like left and right, um, but you can't mirror, you know, up and down. <laughs> you know, you can't mirror like diagonal, but you can sort of mirror some of the diagonals, but it, it's so much more work. It's an order of magnitude more work for, you know, so you have to do one animation like with mirroring, probably like what, like six times to, to get all eight directions. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, and even mirroring, uh, like, I don't know if we've talked about this much, but I mentioned the, in previous podcasts about how the human eye could pick up on patterns. This yeah. is something that you learn a lot when you're learning about looping textures and stuff like that, is that a lot of people don't appreciate this, but you have to be very careful about having uh, elements of a texture or elements of an item that um, is very conspicuously replicated. Uh, this will often be like if you're doing a, a grass or a mud texture you can't have a crack that's too distinct or something like that because yeah. once you loop it thousands of times uh it'll, it'll, the eye will pick it up and it's actually the same thing when you're mirroring stuff so if you've ever taken uh an image that you i don't know needed if you needed someone facing the left and they're facing the right and you mirror them or if you ever mirror uh i think uh Richard, i don't know if we if this is something that we talked about when we were in college but we were talking about like how uh, attractive people or celebrities tend to have very symmetrical faces oh yeah yeah uh, like Denzel Washington is a good example of this. I don't know why I remember Denzel Washington, but yep. uh, uh, part of like the, the the element of attractiveness is part of symmetry. Is um, but when you mirror stuff and you don't fix it, people pick up on it. They're like, oh, there's something that looks wrong about this eye or about this this part of the foot oh, totally. or something. Yeah. So uh, so it isn't so easy to just, just flip something. Like you can get a lot of the work done, but you still have to adjust a lot of the shadows and. Right. Let, let, me, uh, stuff like that. let me tell you something you should never, ever do, ever. If, if you ever want to just absolutely feel terrible about yourself, uh, go into Photoshop, try to touch up like a photo of yourself, just like go crazy, and then mirror it. <laughs> like your brain is going to go nuts because you've spent so much time looking at it in one orientation. And then when you flip it, you know, it's like artists, like when artists see their work flipped, they see everything that's wrong. And in fact, um, someone else who did not create it, if they were walking by, they wouldn't no notice the difference, right? But but to the creator, every imperfection is ma magnified, it's amplified. I remember I, in college, I, it was like a class assignment or something. I was touching up a photo and I was like, oh, you know, mirror it, see how it looks. And I was just like, oh my God, like I look like an ogre. What the, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking of Xenogears in general, uh, so this is another game where I think I, uh, it being also one of my favorite uh, PS1 games, but uh, also because it is perhaps one of the most expansive RPG stories you are likely to experience in terms of uh, like length and complexity. Uh, like it's, uh, it, it builds over time and it, it, it kind of keeps ramping up and it takes, uh, it's got a lot of pretty pretty deep imagery. Like deep, I don't mean that like they went, they made it deep to make it deep. I mean, uh, the, <laughs> the director behind it had a lot of vision behind uh, references he, he wanted or a uh, story he wants to tell and stuff like that. Okay. So it's something that you can really get lost in. Oh, my gosh. It is um, obsessively uh, deep. I think they, 
the uh what the xenogears perfect works guide is like hundreds of pages of uh, exhaustive notes about the setting and uh i mean they worked out like hundreds if not thousands of years of history like of uh that setting right and and you know m multiple generations of lineages and that amount of detail um especially back then that was very rare they, they really went all out um it, it, it was a husband and wife team that wrote the game right uh yeah yeah they uh and i believe they also went on to continue writing the xeno game xeno saga uh and whatnot the yeah. like uh, after kind of a square like I, I think the license moved over to namco uh afterwards but he, he really that, that team continued telling the same story roughly speaking yeah um are are, are the xeno games still going is is uh xenoblade chronicles considered like a, uh i mean i legally i don't think they can call it a continuation but is it a spiritual continuation it is. It's definitely a spiritual continuation. They all like. There's all uh, again very similar to the Final Fantasy series. Like they don't necessarily tell the exact same story, although many of them take place in the same world. Uh, but it's very similar to Final Fantasy, where they have the similar themes. They have a lot of things that appear in every game. Um, and actually, yeah, Xenoblade Chronicles just came out with. Uh, I believe it's called Definitive Edition or something. It's effectively a, uh, a high-level remaster um, of it, which uh, I would highly recommend. Uh, Xenoblade okay. Chronicles, an excellent game. Okay. Oh yeah. By the way, the the writers for Xenogears were uh, uh, Kaori Tanaka, known by her pen name as uh, Soraya uh, Saga. Uh, she's on Twitter actually. You can look her up. She does a lot of really cool JoJo fan art. Um, and then uh, her husband Tetsuya Takashi. And then uh, there was one other writer, uh, Masato Okato. Those those are the writers of Xenogears. And um, I believe, yeah, I I think at least one of them is still writing the Xeno. The Xeno games. Hmm. So any. Uh... Um, I'm not as I'm not as up on the current series as I probably should be. I haven't followed it as much. Yeah. So um, any any new t insights on the game? How many times have you uh, replayed it now? Do you think? Uh, I think this will be my fifth time. Okay. It, it is a very long game, um, and of course, like there's a lot of things like at the. Um, I've had a few like to be honest, I've played it a few times where I didn't make it all the way to the end because the game also famously around the second disc, you know, back when games had multiple discs. Uh, that's not a thing now if you play it on emulation, but um, back in the like in terms of like the this game, like I think famously uh, had a difficult timeline. So it's pretty clear once you get by the second disc that it's a lot of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, so it's really great if you're experiencing it for the first time, but. Um, if you already know the story, uh, it's easy to kind of taper off. Um, luckily, there's a uh, there's probably about 60 hours of game prior to you getting to that point. So it, it may also speak to the fact that the scope of the game perhaps was a little little uh, ambitious. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, th this was back when everybody, you know, I, I think the sweet spot for for RPGs back then, everyone expected to be like 60 hours, even though most games were probably closer to 40 hours. And then, like, 80 hours was, like, you know, the perfect, like, that's how long a game was supposed to be, right? Back, back when, like, you'd play the one game all summer. And Xenogears, I think, was the only one that really delivered on that. It truly was an 80-hour game if you don't even try to, like, max out everything, do every single thing. And uh, I, I know this because I, I have a friend 
who he used to every time a new RPG came out, like you know, we were diehard SquareSoft fans back then. He would marathon it for like 48 hours and beat it. <laughs> like he would he would live in the world of this game and then just beat it, you know, like in one setting. And he just could not do that to Xenogears. He was just like, oh my god, <laughs> it keeps going. Like it, it, it that was the game that finally defeated defeated him. Yeah. I, uh, I haven't checked to see, but there's a show that I watch on YouTube called The Completionist. Um, I forget the guy's name, but he has the whole like thing. Hey, like I don't, we don't just play games, we complete them. And I don't know if he's done Xenogears, but I wonder if it would, because uh, he tends to play games where he doesn't just play through it. He also completes all the achievements and finds all the secrets and everything. Mm. And uh, granted, he doesn't play it in one sitting, but I, I wonder uh, if if he would also be defeated uh, <laughs> by by this game but it's it's not like it doesn't have a lot of it does have some secrets and everything like that but it's it's more of just such an expansive narrative uh yeah. with a lot of gameplay systems uh that's uh I, I don't know it's one of those ones where i can never i feel like it's a um not a, not a reaction but it's kind of a product of the the kind of creators having the certain vision the fact that it was originally supposed to be a final fantasy game uh it's got a very like kind of unique setting in that like it uh, obviously giant robots exists but it's like it's futuristic but it's not uh and they, they have a lot of interesting things where they have um a lot of heavy reference with things like the ethos they have a religious organization that's meant to play a part in the world. They have uh, a war going on. And I think I mentioned this before that um, ultimately most uh, RPGs, especially Japanese ones, tend to be about like the one person that's gonna save the world. And like to a large degree, that is what happens in this game. But uh, one of the reasons why I like this game as well as like True Code and stuff like that is that they tell, uh, we used the word intimate before, it almost feels like to me, they tell more real intimate stories. Like when you're, you're telling a story that has to do with taking place in a war or um, in a world setting, and it's not just like you against the ultimate evil. Um, I find those to be much more engaging stories. Uh, there's some, something about them that uh, feels more real to, to real life, like the idea that the, the character that you're role playing is isn't just like the iconic hero of a story. Uh, it's because to me, it's like a, it's always hard to kind of get into that character. Because most people are not, uh, you know, a, a mythical hero. Uh, and I, I like the idea of these games of where the character comes from a very relatable background, even though like most people haven't like lost their memory and have amazing martial arts skills and are like the killer of God. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> uh, but but uh, if you look at like these games, there's a lot of. But in terms of, like it, deep down in that, they're they're generally uh, a fairly flawed person that is just trying to usually discover themselves and they want something fairly simple out of life. Uh, you, you can tell a lot of times that the Faye, the main character of this game, really doesn't want to be a weapon. He doesn't want to be good at fighting. He doesn't want to be in a war, but he does things for his friends and his family. And uh, sorry, you were going to say? I was just going to say, um, yeah, it, it's it's a rare example of a very um, successful, flawed hero. I mean, he, he is an epic hero. Like, he's based off of Wong Fei Hong and, like, other legendary heroes, but they make him very uh, human at heart, even though he is has this grand uh, destiny. And um, I, I feel like even now, not that many games really pull that off. And then at that time, a lot of the stuff you're talking about was pretty unusual. Like, even reverencing religion at all 
uh, was was uh, the game almost didn't come out in America because of that. Um, and then they they did have this thing that was could very easily be interpreted as an analog for the Catholic Church. And then um, even that, I feel like they they actually handled it with some nuance. It wasn't like, hey guys, you know, we're going to make a game about how religion's evil. Um, they really put thought into this organization and e even came up with like really beautiful uh, uh, belief systems, uh, their own mythology, uh, the whole creation story about like th their version of Adam and Eve, each being born with one wing and they had to help each other in order to fly. Oh, like, like beautiful stuff, like stuff that felt heavy, heavy and mythological and um, really thoughtful. Definitely. And there's there's also uh, I, I've always been a big fan of this kind of epic tale that transcends generations um the and and um, i don't know if uh we've talked about this before but uh, when you look at arcs of arcs of storytelling and stuff like that i think people will often go back so i'm gonna totally throw a show under the bus here not because i think many people listening may love the show lost but i do <laughs> not like it um and it's not and i'll tell you why and why this is related to me so uh and i think Richmond, we, we might have had this conversation in our past, but so uh, we had a bunch of friends that told me we had to watch Lost. So I hadn't seen it. We watched it. And uh, there's one episode in particular I remember where I really, there's one where uh, one of the characters is in a wheelchair. But when they introduce that to you, uh, the entire episode kind of tells his story and you it's kind of a reveal that he's in a wheelchair. But what I didn't appreciate about it is that the story didn't have the underlying structure to connect. Like they literally hid the information from you the entire time. So yeah. there's no way that you could have inferenced from the way that it was set up that that was an important element. Uh, so as a result, like I kind of look at that as weak storytelling, which is that hiding information or dropping a twist on the viewer, if you didn't put the infrastructure in place to set it up before is lazy storytelling because it's easy to surprise someone if they don't know it's coming. Like if you're like even the best fighter, if they don't know they're going to get punched, is going to get hit. Like it's, it's one of these things where, uh, it's one of these things where, uh, I'm just using that as an example. I'm sure plenty no, of people no, I, love I lost, that. but I, I remember that moment. It was, that was like a teachable moment for us. That was, that was when I was like, Oh, like, I don't think we're being arrogant or anything. We're, we're, we're not trying to poop on a popular show. Like that was just, feels cheap it's like the 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 dramatic equivalent of a jump jump scare right it's not really earned exactly earned is a good word and uh the reason that i bring this up in the context of xenogears is that i think as as you can make the, the deal that their story is complicated and long and uh, some of it can feel con contrived on its face but once you play through the entire thing sorry this is garbage stuck outside i'm just gonna wait second <laughs> that's funny uh anyway so uh when you look at xenogears is like the what i love about it is the infrastructure is there like uh, the opening cutscene starts off showing you this the ship in space dealing with a uh uh dealing with a this disaster and uh i believe it's actually um one of the i'm trying to remember the animation studio but at the time it was a really famous animation studio that did the opening i want to say um, it was production ig yeah, production IG, thank you. Really, really beautiful, yeah, really beautiful opening cinematic uh, anime style quality. Uh, and it's not opening to the game, it's an it's intro, like you see it in the title screen. And uh, when you start the game, like it's so far disconnected from it. And it's one of those things where you wonder why they showed it to you and yeah. 
uh, like it does not connect for a long time. Like it's like watching Arrested Development. Sometimes the jokes take a long, <laughs> long time to land. Good, good, um, good. Um, oh, by the way, it was Yeah, yeah, just just for context, it's, the opening is total sci-fi space opera. Um, and the game itself is like heavy fantasy elements. People still fight with their fists, but the opening is like, you know, it could be uh, uh, like Star Trek or um, Legend of Galactic Heroes or, or like something like that. Like very hard, realistic sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's one of those things where uh, and I'm, I'm going to spoil a couple things here, but, you know, the game's, you know, 20, 25 years old, 23 years old at this point. Um, so I feel like, you know, if you haven't <laughs> played it, maybe you don't care, but spoilers anyway. Uh, so one of the things about it that I really appreciate uh, and why I enjoy it so much is, uh, for instance, the, the ship that you see at the beginning is called the Eldridge. Uh, they, and like, ultimately it's uh, a thing where the, what became life on their planet, uh, in terms of the human civilization, um, and ultimately a lot of that is, is, uh, started, uh, by this ship crashing, um, and the, their general idea of God, actually, uh, it plays with it a lot because uh, ultimately it was a created uh, organism on the ship that crashed and kind of became God on the planet. But what's interesting about the whole thing is that they've at no point do they really ever tell you uh, something like this is the Aldridge and it's the ship. And then like, you don't it's not until you get near the very end of the game where you're going you're going to what they're calling like the resting place of god because like it's it's this thing where they play with the perspective of the characters um in terms of this is what they think of as god this is and, and it makes a lot of sense and when you finally get there they're like this is the final resting place of god and it's very clearly the wreckage of the ship and it like it's, it's one of those things where it literally takes they take 60 to 80 hours to land this connection <laughs> um yeah, to go all and then the way as, back to the beginning. Exactly. And as you work back through all the things that you learned and all the things the characters went through and the development of each one of the antagonistic authorities that you deal with, like Solaris and stuff like that, uh, you can see that um, all of this was connected. It's, it's the difference between, I don't want to throw like something like uh, Game of Thrones or something, but a lot of shows will get criticism, like dramatic shows, if they're making it up as they go along rather than planning out the episode. Maybe Star Wars is a better example of this. Uh, where like maybe the last trilogy Game perhaps under the bus like uh, you could do, yeah. last season the last couple of seasons, yeah where they got it, it's all, all the, yeah all these all these are good examples of when people don't put in the proper storytelling infrastructure it's, again it's, it goes back to thoughtfulness the the thing with Xenogears is that to me like it's it's so earned to go through it all because even though you know the story um, it's almost like the, the experience of going through the steps and it's one of those things where sometimes when you watch things over and over again, you get a more of appreciation for it. And Xenogears is a game where as many times as I've like five, five times for a game this long is a lot. And I played through it maybe three or four complete times, but every time I'm always picking up on the infrastructure they're putting in place, I can see them building the story. Uh, to me, that's, that's something that is, is very innately satisfying. Um, because they don't trick you. It's not like that's the whole thing about it. Um, and that's why I bring up the lost example is that you, you find that uh, they put a lot of detail they didn't need to because uh, the story the story was so well thought out and they wanted to make sure that when you looked back at every part of the game 
that your experience made sense. It was earned. It all connected, and it makes it a very cohesive world. It makes all the characters very believable. And uh, we were even talking about like modern character design recently and stuff like that. It's one of those things where I think a lot of games, a lot of stories brush over this because they don't think, you know, it's it's kind of like. Uh, Sometimes you'll skip over the foundational elements of drawing or you won't practice your gestures or, you know, it's uh, nowadays I think a lot of even very talented artists will skip over the foundations. And uh, I always, from a comfort perspective, turn to things that are so well crafted that uh, even though you know everything about them, they still continue giving. So I don't know, it's um, very much been, it has it continued to cement its place in my heart as one of my favorite games of all time. That's great. Yeah, I think um, that that's a really good point. It's, you have a deep appreciation for it. Uh, so, uh, you know, some say familiarity breeds contempt, which um, I I think you, you you need to hang out with better things like this because sometimes when you love something, that, that can just grow even more over time. Like you, you come back to it and you're like, ah, yeah, it's still good. <laughs> and there's something very comforting about that, that... Um, there is this thing out there that you you can reliably return to and still feel a lot of that magic that uh, made you love it in the first place. Um, so I imagine that's why, say, uh, uh, both of us are, are going back to um, some older titles uh, at the moment. Uh, I will I will add, it's not perhaps a comfort game, but I have, uh, we talked about it last episode, I have started playing the Final Fantasy VII remake, uh, and I'm very much enjoying it, but oh, again, yeah. I... Um, I, I think it uh, it goes back to uh, this is this is perhaps a embarrassing thing to say, but I did not play the original um, uh, myself, and I didn't play it when it came out because it came out around the same time that Shukoden Two and Xenogears came out uh, mm. in 1997. So even though I'm very familiar with, like I've seen people play the game, uh, I've obviously seen. Uh, large parts of it. I, I like. I know the whole story. Like I've kind of absorbed Final Fantasy VII uh, via the cultural zeitgeist, but I have not actually played through the entire game. Okay. So uh, I do actually don't have the benefit of nostalgia, um, but I am still picking up on a lot of the the elements that are so well crafted in the world. And I think it's one of those things where there are elements of it where, without being familiar with the the previous moment in the game because like for me i feel like i know about all the big beats because people tell you about them you watch them you hear about them uh in the same way that you can get references to something that you haven't watched a, a couple times there's definitely the smaller moments where i'm able to recognize like wow i don't know how this original moment but i i under i very much feel that they captured what the original intent was and they're able because of the 3d environment because of uh so there, there's a lot of things where they're clearly able to add something like a beautiful vista or uh, a poignant view behind the shot. Um, but I still feel like it goes back to, uh, I've been play playing a lot. Of, I guess it does have distractingly beautiful people, but I've been like, uh, I've been like, wow, a game hasn't made me feel like this for a long time. Maybe I think I mentioned the last of us might've been one of the first, the most modern games to really engross me in a way and really like pulled me into the story in a way that I really, you know, gave a shit about it in, yeah. in an important way. Uh, and, and then I was like, oh, right, because this isn't a new game. <laughs> it's an old game. They've just, uh, they've just lovingly re like, like recrafted it um, in a way that is intended to completely replicate what story they were trying to tell, but with all of the modern conventions, uh, ability to improve character acting, 
uh, ability to render more stuff. Um, you could you could pretty much immediately understand things like uh, I know I I know that like they had very limited cutscenes, uh, and Final Fantasy VII was one of the first 3D games uh, to use real time rendering and stuff like that. And I could immediately feel even in the opening of the game, which I was familiar with, that they were already starting to do more things with the story uh, that were important. That like like the uh, the opening shot doesn't just have stars; it sh it shows you Midgar. It goes to the city. It it um, demonstrates that there are people living off of the power of the reactor. Like you can see that there are there are dead flowers and uh, like it, they tell. Yeah, the oh, in the opening. Yeah, yeah. The original does have a, a famous uh, pan uh, through the city like that. Because um, no, I'm talking about uh, the shot before uh, that part, before you meet Aerith. They, they have like a new kind of thing where they're like an eagle and it shows the world and it shows like the Midgar skyline. Uh, oh, are like are that. you talking about the, the full game or the demo? The full game. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I haven't picked up the full game yet. I, 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 do, I, need, I do need to get, get into it, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. So that was something that I picked up on in the, uh, the, the full game. I, I guess that wasn't a demo. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, right. Um, but either way, I, don't, I think we could probably have another episode once we all get really deeply into the remake. But it was, I did want to mention it in that I've been, I've been playing it a little bit, not as much because I've been playing a lot of other comfort games. But it yeah. was one where I, I had that moment where I was like, man, this I, a game hasn't made me feel like this in a while. And then I had the, the, I was like, oh, right, because it's it's a remake of a classic game. There's a lot of, there's a lot of underlying thoughtfulness there that they're taking advantage of. Um, mm. But we could we could have do an entire other episode on. Oh, uh, totally. Oh, all we definitely will. Yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah, but, but I, I wanted to kind of talk about that, that feeling, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, so. It sounds like you crave games of uh, substance. You know, just a lot of thought has been put into uh, not just the gameplay, but like the the, the world setting and the story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, sounds like story is a very very important element for you. I, I think for for me, uh, like on one, like I said, I mentioned that I've been playing some multiplayer games, and I think those are really fun, especially when you have oh, a lot right. of friends to yeah, play. Of course, yeah. Uh, but like for me, I, I honestly think my my comfort is uh, narratives that I can kind of get swept up in, mm. um, and and not 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 just because they're they're good air quotes, but ones that have like they're so thoughtful and they have so much uh, depth behind them. Like depth, not meaning like complexity because i think a lot of people think depth they think oh it needs to be complicated and i think on its face the yeah. years is like that but to me that's why i think maybe telltale became a thing i was like man uh i think this is why entertainment is always such a, a solace for a lot of people in times of difficulty is because you want to be not just distracted like distracted is a thing where you still have something on your mind i think you want to be swept away you want to you know and i think that's that's always a, a thing that I've had and why I've never really quite gotten into MMOs, to be honest, is that like um, I'm always aware enough that I'm I'm part of a narrative, but I'm not encompassed in the narrative. Yeah. That makes I, sense. I, you want to be immersed, right? I, I think um, that's maybe the thing that games uh, uh, tend to do best compared to other mediums, or at least uh, more they're more immediately gripping with the immersion, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people, um, I, I haven't really gotten as much into it as other people, but like, I think Animal Crossing is very much playing this this role for a lot of people uh, in that it's a, uh, a game that you can get immersed in, not because of the narrative, but because uh, it focuses on the mundane elements of life, but also you can share it with friends. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I will say, uh, 
it also has really great characters. Like you mentioned even before, Heroes of the Storm, right? Uh, that, that's a multiplayer game. Most people wouldn't consider it story-driven, except that you already know the story of a lot of the characters. And I think you mentioned that's one of the things that brought you back to it in the first place, right? The, the uh, really immersive characters, engaging characters. Absolutely. And this is, uh, and don't get me wrong, I have all the respect in the world for Riot Games. I think they have some of the most talented artists in the world and their marketing and their video stuff is on point. But it's so difficult for me to get into most everything they do because like the characters and the world just don't, uh, earned is not quite the right word because they work really hard on it. But there's just something about the characters that just don't land for me because they, they feel, they don't feel like they exist together. They don't feel like they belong in the same world. Uh, they don't feel like they have any any basis behind them. And I feel like, even though Heroes of the Storm, the way that they bring the characters together using the Nexus is a contrivance, uh, all of those characters have so much more um, meat behind them. They have, they there's, all of them have a, have a history. There's, like, even if you don't know most of the characters, like if you're uh, probably someone, very, very many Blizzard fans have only played one of the franchises. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, you may be a WoW fan, but you may have never seen Diablo or vice versa. Uh, so it's something where the uh, the way that it lands is, like, you can just fall in love with the one character. Like, uh, when That's I first started mean. playing it, yeah, like, when, when I first started playing it, I played the crap out of, uh, like, Tyrael, uh, one of the archangels from Diablo. Uh, and I was, like, I didn't really, like, it didn't really matter to me that I was in epic matchups. Although, like, they definitely... Heroes definitely creates some moments that you can't really replicate in other games. Like uh, in the like, you, you'll be having like a fight where you know you have an archangel dive to fight against the devil, and then Jim Rayner from StarCraft comes out with the Hyperion, and then like Deathwing flies over the battlefield. Like those are kind of like moments that sound like something that a kid would come up with. Yeah. Um, and they're focused on team-based fighting and uh, really, and like really, there's a lot of like Easter eggs in terms of like there's obviously a lot of love for these characters and all these people yeah. came from teams that like worked on these and uh, Sam Didier, the art director, is one of the original uh, like guys that designed WoW and StarCraft characters. So like uh, I, I've, I've every once in a while heard criticism. Was that, that Samwise? Yes, right? uh, Samwise. Yeah. Yeah, that was his uh, pen name in the early games, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, um, and it was uh, it was one of those ones where, uh, uh, like I said, there's a criticism that it's like not you know it's not like a, a you know a Blizzard game in that uh, it just combines other things. But I think people forget that the people that moved to this team to work on it worked on those games. Like these are their characters. These are they, so they're so lovingly crafted and uh, they're so interested in like and and especially. Uh, over the last year, I feel like the game's just gotten more nonsensical and ridiculous, which just makes it such a, a joyful thing to 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 play with. And like, it's just uh, not that like League and Dota aren't complex games that are fun to play, but I think there's something uh, uh, I don't know joyous about it to me. It's just like uh, again, it just it feels like the the kind of delightfulness that you have like going to a ball pit or something. I don't know, it's my it's, my feedback on it. Would you say it's analogous to Smash Brothers? Are they kind of like Blizzard Smash Brothers. Yeah, like uh, these these characters that have been developed in all these different games, um, suddenly brought together uh, and executed like very thoughtfully. Uh, yeah, it's. Pre- I mean, actually, uh, if you didn't know, Heroes of the Storm was originally called Blizzard All Stars. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it was originally called Blizzard Dota, but then there was a, a law thing, a legal a lawsuit. It was a whole whole like 
uh, weird history behind how how uh, the MOBA genre was birthed in Warcraft Three, but that's a different podcast for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's totally exactly that thing. It's just yeah, I, I would agree that Smash delivers this this same feeling very very well. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say I want to make one more comment about um. You, you mentioned Riot again. You know, they're they're obviously doing really well. Really uh, talented teams. People love their games, but um. Uh, so I, I personally don't play uh, MOBAs very much, um, but uh, I'm just thinking about like the the characters. Like I, I think if I Heroes of the Storm, I'm a little more familiar with Blizzard characters. But at a glance, you could tell like you know what kind of character this is, right? This guy's a space marine. This person's like demonic. You know, th this person has been taken over by a parasite or something. Like there, there's stuff that conveys like a little bit of story in the design. And then when when I think of Dota, like um, even you know like sorry uh, it's am i thinking the right game which one is the one where they do like promo movies like they had like that k-pop one that's league of legends is that league and which, which is that riot that's definitely right that yeah is that's right okay sure. so so again like um so when blizzard puts out like a a, a promo it's very story driven right it puts you in the moment you you you, you follow this character um you feel immersed in that world uh, and then when when I think of the 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 um the, like say that K-pop one that went all over the place right, it was very stylish, looked really cool, um, but it told me nothing about the characters, or the world or the setting or the what kind of game it is, um, and uh, has a totally different mood from the actual game. Um, and then maybe I think maybe like you could get DLC costumes that you saw like in the music video, right? And uh, uh, yeah, that's exactly what you could do. It's really cool yeah i actually have that uh that uh k-pop that uh, it's not a fake k-pop song because they really invest in it but i have yeah. that on my running playlist <laughs> nice. it's, a, it's okay. a really catchy song right? yeah. um, but, uh, actually all their that... all their trailer songs are great yeah, yeah. and so it, it was very catchy but i would say uh, that that that's emblematic of their different approaches right like that one is very much about stylishness and make this a shareable thing but um it's not necessarily world building Right, whereas uh, Blizzard stuff is very uh, world building, um, e even they're, in the promos. They're starting to do some world building stuff with uh, stuff, some of the stuff for Legends of Runeterra, which is their uh, their card game that is based on the same universe. But I don't know. It's something about um, like, just to be honest, a lot of these characters were were based on Warcraft Three archetypes because that's where uh, MOBAs were originally built in. So you see a lot of characters that are they're not generic but they have story and background retroactively added to them. And it's, I think it's difficult to world build. Um, I, I feel like uh, companies like, uh, like Respawn um, are doing well with it. Like with Apex Legends, they introduced like fairly generic characters, but they are, they are starting to release stories about them and literally like mm -hmm. building the background, but it's difficult. It's hard to do. I'm, I don't, I don't fault anybody for having a rough time, especially when the game in and of itself is, the, the gameplay loop doesn't play well into it. I think maybe what I like about narrative games is that the the backdrop and the story that you're being told are very related to yeah. the mechanics and the gameplay that you're experiencing. Oh, and I, I just want to say in, in in the defense of Riot, like, you know, we're the games we're talking about, um, like uh, uh, Heroes of the Storm and and comparing that to Smash Brothers, like, they, it's, it's built off of decades and decades of history. So, like, yeah, it, they have an advantage that they're taking, a unique advantage uh, that they're taking advantage, you know, that they're building off of their, yeah. It's harder to, to immerse people right away in a new thing. But, yeah, that's, that's pretty much uh, 
uh, kind of what, what I've been doing. Uh, I think a lot of people are enjoying uh, a lot of like the multiplayer shooters and, and stuff like that, like Battle Royales. It's just uh, for for me personally, it may just be what we grew up with. It just doesn't quite <laughs> it doesn't offer a comfort to me, even though they are fun games. I wonder um, if people grow up entirely or largely on like, uh, you know, mobile free to play games. And if those games don't persist 10 years from now, like, uh, I, you know, what is their, what are they going to be nostalgic for? Are they, is it going to be for something that they can't play anymore? Like, I, uh, that'll be uh, something unfamiliar to me because uh, all, all my favorite games tend to be off offline. That's a good point. I don't know. Uh, I guess that is, is a thing. Uh, like a lot of games like do require... <laughs> Uh, servers and online connection to work. Uh, although I've seen a couple of uh, game developers where when they transition off of online requirement, they basically release a build of the game that can run offline. But oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting thought. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Do you think future generations will be nostalgic for like uh, Clash of Clans or, or, or uh, Fortnite? Are they, are they going to look back on that the way we look on, uh, you know, Street Fighter? I don't know. I, I feel like probably Fortnite is much more of a cultural phenomenon than, than Clash is. Uh, even though I think uh, Clash and Clash Royale are great games, I don't know. There's something about the they're so they're they're somewhat ephemeral to the game industry. To be fair, like I don't know if they have enough staying power to uh, to really land. Like at least uh, like Fortnite has got its own kind of cultural impact going. If that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So I it's feel got like the dances it's, and other other. Uh relics like that outside of the gameplay right memeable stuff stuff that you you, you know you can kind of insert it into like real life conversations a little bit yeah it's true i mean i mean I'll, I'll admit that i've i've never really gotten into the the fortnite cultural impact but i can't uh <laughs> uh i can't deny that uh it is it's a powerful force uh although it's one of those things where i think maybe someone that plays it more might be more educated because it obviously has enough characterization that they can sell action figures and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I think there's also enough games uh, coming out that people will be uh, nostalgic for them. I mean, there's a lot of sequels coming out to things. Yeah. So yeah, it's that's it's an interesting question because I think uh, the gaming landscape has really changed so much and it changes so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a mile a minute, and we've seen it's it's almost doubled in revenues in in the last couple of months it's pretty nice yeah it's insane but i I think it also is what we were talking about is i think a lot of people that uh this might sound bad but were previously going out to eat or going to you know hanging out with friends or uh doing things that you can leave your house to do or even i think people are actually running out of stuff to do which is insane sounding but uh like you can only watch so many shows and stuff like that but uh I think it's just a lot of people entering gaming that perhaps um, either haven't done a lot of it or haven't done it before at all. Um, for instance, uh, Rachel started, well, not that she hasn't played this before, but she started playing Viva Pinata on her Xbox. Yeah. Which is, to this day, the only game that she's really invested in, <laughs> like, ever really, like, played. But uh, I, I discovered that uh, they released a thing called Rare Replays, which is all of Rare's games remastered on Xbox so that she could play it. And uh, even she's been, like, spending some of her time playing it. She's actually been talking about how she, how she's stressed out about it because she's like, no, my garden's growing too fast, and I haven't, like, you know, I don't, I don't know all the mechanics of Viva Pinata, but she's like, oh, I haven't uh, 
been able to to grow these early on pinatas and i have the other advanced ones that are coming in like i just i'm so stressed out by this because like, a guide i can get and everything and i was like okay the gaming is grabbing you and i think it has to do with um the year activity of the medium has a lot longer tail uh you know oh, yeah. it tells you a story or it gets you engaged in a world but like you have so much you can use you can spend so much more time on it which is why you know people get addicted to like uh things like world of warcraft Although I did want to mention that uh, I enjoyed how the World Health Organization really made a whole reversal on that one, where they uh, they had previously characterized video games as being uh, potentially uh, addictive, but now they were like they were like now now they're like with the stay apart together uh, campaign. They're like no 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 play video games. Yeah, it's healthy. I mean, it, it really is one of the best ways you could spend your time right now. All right, cool. I, I think uh, it's been a little bit over an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Yep. Should we uh, wrap stuff up. Let's do it. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for for listening. Um, I hope uh, you guys are able to, um, you know, keep safe during this time. You and your loved ones. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's 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 crazy. It is pretty nuts out there. Uh, so wishing the best for everyone and. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. And you can, uh, by the way, you can catch us on on Twitter. Um, my handle is at Richmond Lee. That's R I C H M O N D underscore L E E. And uh, Sean, uh, you're a Deborsk, right? Yep, Deborsk. And if you ever play games with me, that's basically the gamer tag I use everywhere. Oh, okay, so. nice. Yeah, maybe you guys can catch a game of uh, Heroes of the Storm with Sean sometime. Um, right, and we also have uh, the Art Eater podcast Twitter at Art Eater uh, Podcast. Um, look that up and let us know what games you've been playing. You know, let us know what what are the comfort games that uh, you've been reaching out to uh, in these uh, times of strife. You know, what what are the good old reliable games that uh, you've been playing, or or maybe you're playing playing new stuff. You know, catching up with with new releases. Um, yeah, let us know what uh, you've been having fun with. Um, yeah, and if you have any um, any comments on anything we've discussed, uh, let us know. And uh, if there's any any topics you think maybe you'd like to hear us discuss, uh, let us know via via Twitter as well. So thank you so much for listening. Um, yeah, thank you for listening to the tenth tenth podcast, tenth RDR podcast, and uh, we'll we'll keep this going. So thank you and stay safe. Have a good day. Bye, stay safe. <laughs>